One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two year contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 58 of Histories of the Unexpected, where we will be audio-googling through history, exploring the history of things you didn't even know had a significant story to tell, like courage, cages and castration. Or cars, bars and jars, spoons, moons and pontoons, blood, mud and floods. Out of those, which do you want to do? Oh, uh, I would like to do the unexpected history of floods. Floods. Yeah, which obviously would not be just about there were a flood happened here, no, no flood happened no, there. No. It's um, about floods of tears, floods ooh. of. Mm, mm, yeah, def- I'd like to do flooded floods kitchens and castration and castration. Ooh, that sounds yeah, yeah. eunuchs. Very good. I like that. I like that. I like that. And we'll be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how simply everything has a history, and crucially, how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam, who knew that the history of dance is all about political codes? It's about celebration. It's about magic. And it's about rain. Mm, And ceilings. Did you know that? Ceilings, dancing on the ceiling, yes. Oh, no, no. (laughs) Noisy neighbours. No, it's um, it's to do with ballrooms, isn't it? It's to do with ballrooms and architecture. And and, and decorating ceilings. Very good. And Versailles, among other things. Anyway. um, And Johnsonian masks and the history of trees. The history of trees is about landscape tunnels, naval battles, memorialisation, paper, and the most horrific wounds. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, Firing firing, um, troops... Hiding in trees no. sh- and being shot at, and the splinters of the trees just yeah. sort of, whoosh, yeah, gosh, going. Yes. Um, the man sitting opposite me is the Yeti of yesterday. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, and and hello, and and sticking with my religious theme, <laughs> the man sitting opposite me is the. Pastor of past times. It's the famous historical adventure of the truly wonderful Dr. Sam Willis. Hello, everyone. Um, and every week we, we take it in turns to discuss a unexpected subject oozing with historical significance. Now, we're in the middle of doing a kind of a mini-series um, on writing and books, aren't we? Because we're writing a book. We are writing a book. We are writing a book and we've been plugging this for <laughs> every single podcast that we've been doing. But we're writing a book on... The histories of the unexpected for Yay! you, which will be in bookshops and online um, uh, by probably October 2018, ready Absolutely. for Christmas. Um, and so, one of the things we thought we'd do, uh, we've done the history of the book, we've done the history of writing, we've done the history of papers, blah, blah, blah. Codes. We are doing the history of our books. We are. Um, which is kind of an interesting thing. A, that our 
books have their own history. Of course they do. Um, but they, that it's something that we can map and we can we can talk about. Actually, we can talk about um, the sort of the his, historical process of writing the books, how that changed, and the kind of the physical appearance of the books. Yes, who, nice. Who wants to go first? Uh, I've got I'm, more than you. Yeah, <laughs> I've brought eight with me. Oh, that's good. Yes. Okay. It's going to be a long. They're books that took a long. I'm older than you. I've been writing for longer. Yeah. I am. I am older Let's than you. Let's start at the beginning. Let's like start good at the beginning. What's the first what, one? My, Show my me your first, first one. My first book, if I can find it. Maybe I haven't brought it. Yeah, here it is. So Oxford University Press, and it's Women Letter Writers in Tudor England, which is a brilliant, brilliant book. Now, <laughs> as, as a rule, I, so I myself. always judge a book by its cover. Yes, um, nice, isn't it? As you should. Um, Oxford University Press, so um, that's a very good publishing house for your first book, James. It is. Women Letter Writers in Tudor England, um, James Dayboy. It's beautiful, actually. It's, um, it's very dark. Who's this on the front cover? She's a lady letter writer, a lady, female letter writer, a female a, letter an writer. unknown unknown woman, uh, but a portrait in the national from the National Gallery, I think. Let me read the blurb. The most comprehensive study of women's letters and letter writing during the early modern period so far undertaken. Women letter writers in Tudor England act as an important corrective to traditional ways of reading and discussing letters as private, elite, male and non-political based on over 3,000 manuscript letters. Gosh, did you read them all? Yes, transcribe them all. The book reveals how letter writing was a larger and more socially diversified area of female activity in the 16th century than has previously been assumed. I wrote that myself. That's not... That's, <laughs> that's, 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 not, that's not puff. Okay. No, no, no. You, you pen your own blurbs, yes. And, it, and it's it, it, the extraordinary price of about £60, £65. Wow, that's interesting. As a good it's, a, it's, a, it's a collector's. It's a collector's item. And this, this was based Basically, the the book of my PhD. Okay. So it's very very common for people who want to make an academic career, having done your PhD, to try and turn it into a book. I mean, it took me another six years to so write. Let me jump in here because my yes. first book is based on my PhD. So do you want to yes. grab that one there? It's Which one? Third down. Third down. Third down. Yeah. Oh. Um, we'll do the same thing, and then we'll just talk about the history of our books in terms of writing our first books. Yes, great. Um, you, you can read the blurb. Okay, so this is uh, another handsome book with ships on the front, ships at battle. It's titled Fighting at Sea in the 18th Century, The Art of Sailing Warfare by Sam Willis. And the publisher is Boyd Ellen Brewer, another excellent uh, academic press. Uh, did you pen this blurb yourself? Don't think so. The history of warfare between sailing warships has long been divorced from the practicalities of seamanship and the harsh reality of battle. For generations, the skills required to fight have been poorly understood based upon new and original research. Very important. This book explains in greater detail than ever before how and why sea fights were won and lost in the age of sail. What strikes me about both of these blurbs is what we're trying to do, because these are academic books, yeah. you are trying to insert it in a field. You are trying to trumpet why, basically, so what? Yeah, Why is this book important? It's not just an what interesting is it, book. What it is, is it important, doing? and it yeah. says new stuff. Yeah. Um, and so these books it's interesting they're both the same size i mean there must be eighty thousand words yeah this is pro yeah probably about a hundred how many pages i've got two five four words uh i have three two eight three two eight um okay. i think i think i i got away with um 
I got away with more words mm. than I should have done. So it's interesting. Though, for us, the history of our books, the unexpected history of our books, it takes us back to being, I suppose, 24? Yeah. About 24 or 25. And to get onto the ladder of writing, we, we, we turned our PhDs into books. Yes. Did you study your PhD with a book in mind? Did you deliberately choose it because you thought you could turn it into a book? Um, probably. I mean, I think, I think the thing is that when you are, when you're embarking upon a, an academic career nowadays, you can't, but think in that way. Mm. And I was, I was actually incredibly hard headed and practical about how I, how I chose things. And I chose this because, because I thought that it would be a, it would be an entry into the field. I sat down when I started on my PhD. I didn't really know exactly what I was going to do. I'd got funding and I had about three different projects. I was going to do something on Thomas Cromwell's political patronage. And I kind of thought, you know, this would be great. Um, but I'd be then sort of sparring with the great and the good in, you know, in early Tudor history. So he's famously 1530s um, um, leading statesman in the reign of Henry VIII. Jeffrey Elton and David Starkey and, you know, goodness knows who had already written on him. I was going to do that or I was going to do something on women and politics in early Tudor England. But somebody else, uh, a good friend of mine, Barbara Harris, had already, you know, had filled that place in the in the field. Um, I was also then going to do something on mid-Tudor households and, mm. and women. Um, and then I sat down with my supervisor and he said, well, why don't you do something on women's letters? Um he said, you know, this is this is something that nobody has done anything on. Yeah. So you immediately... It's unbelievable you no one has done anything on it. I mean, there are bits, there are, you know, odd little bits and pieces. But not a substantial but book. But not a substantial like, yeah, yeah. book. And this was supposed, this was intended to be the kind of comprehensive study. And it, and it is the kind of, it's the go-to study now did you enjoy, for people working, you know, for you, working in that area. Did you enjoy writing it? Uh, yes, loved it. I think, I think, though, I haven't always found writing as enjoyable. I think I enjoy it much more now. Yeah. And I think I think as you as I get older and I get more experienced and I move further away from the PhD stage. The PhD is an extraordinary beast. It is. Because you are having to jump through hoops. You have a supervisor who I had a wonderful supervisor, a wonderful wonderful supervisor in Ralph Holbrook, great sort of social and religious historian. Um a truly great historian. Um, he he was very very supportive, but nonetheless, you know, he has a professional role to, you know, bring you on as a historian and train you, and so you are constantly writing, and somebody is critiquing what you are writing, and you have to do it in, and, with certain types of yes, language, and yes, do it exactly, sort of, and and also I think we are very we 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 are very different historians, and I think you know we both accept that. And I think he, we, we both had to turn our PhDs into books. Yes. You can't just copy and paste yes. it. You have to rewrite no, no, no. the whole thing. You no, have no, to no. Make, make it acceptable. Absolutely. To, not accept, Absolutely. Easily, um, easily digestible. Yes. As, yes, you know, yes, yes, yes. Even, even though it's for an acad you've written an academic book for an academic audience, you yeah. have to make it more widely yes. Uh, yes. digestible than yes. just your, your examiner. Yes. You? But mm. I, wrote, I wrote for a long time with, my, with him on my shoulder. Mm. So him as my audience. Um, and I found that, you know, that was great because because what it did, he ha he was a, he's utterly forensic in the way in which he reads. 
And so you, you know, you write kind of almost inoculating, trying to inoculate yourself against, you know, every critique that's going to come at you. The problem is stylistically that imposes certain constraints on you. And I found as I, as I have, as I've moved away from that period, I've been able to be much freer with, with how I write. Yeah. So I, I think the interesting so thing constrained. is that I did the same. My supervisor was Professor Nicholas Roger, who yep. um, uh, was a fabulous man. Um, it still is. He's not dead. <laughs> but he was, still, he was wonderful to me during the, um, during the process of writing it. But I think what's interesting here is that the, the history of our books both begins with an audience of one. Yes, yes. And then, and then it, it dramatically changes. Yes. And it, it moves on and it moves up. So um, I, I think what's also fascinating now is that our careers split at this stage. Yes. Um, and so I'm going to show you. I want to hear more about what about writing these books, what? about doing the about how you actually wrote about it. Um, I, I well, can we come back to that? We can definitely come back yes. to that. Um, and I, I just think I think the the, the this, this history of the, the kind of the, the mapping of, of of our writing is, is something I want to explore. So after this, I, I then wrote those three enormous books down there, which are the Fighting Ships. Me. Fighting Ships books. Are those A3 size? I don't know what they are. They're massive. They are They're enormous. They are books. bigger than than sort of Atlas sized is what yep. they are. And so we've done Fighting Ships uh, from the ancient world to 1750, Fighting Ships 1750 to 1850, and Fighting Ships 1850 to 1950. And what they allowed me to do, this is when, when there was a kind of a revolution in print technology in China. And you can start producing books like this. I mean, they are, they're enormous and they're full colour. Yeah. Um, you could start producing books like this in colour and selling them for 20 quid. Yeah. Rather than, I mean, so in like the 1990s... They were 20 quid? Yeah. In the 1990s, they'd be 150 quid. Yes. And yes, so you can yes. actually mass produce and mass sell enormous books. Yes. And no one had done it before. And it allowed me to... Um, well, it's still sort of hanging on to the, the, the academic side of things in terms of discovering and presenting new material to the public. There's a lot of great new material there. Um, ship plans, images, battle plans, portraits... Uh, yeah. all, all sorts of things, but every 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 spread is focused on one image or a collection of images yes. with um with a little bit of like a paragraph blurb about it. Um, so that's what what I moved They're visual, on to. Big, big visually stunning books, very different from a kind of what we're talking about. What we've been talking about with our first books is these are research monographs. Yeah. So monographs being a single authored academic book. Yeah. That is an intervention within the field. These are you know, big, yeah, visually stunning books. Yeah, but for a much, much broader market. Much broader but but they also still still you know present new information. I mean, the you said you wanted to know more about the the process of writing this yes. first book. What do yes. you ask me some questions? What do you mean particularly? What do I mean? Well, how did you? I mean, how did you? I mean, I think you could take this from several in several ways. One is how you came up with the initial idea to do this as a PhD. I suppose that that's where it where it started. How you went out and did the did the primary research, mm. how you then came up with the structure of the book, yep. how you then, I mean, the interesting thing then is how you turn a PhD, really detailed but narrow PhD, into a book that people are going to, yep. are going to sell. The problem nowadays for PhD students is that their PhDs are automatically put on electronic repositories right. in universities and at the British Library on ethos. Any of you wanting to read um, recent history PhDs can do so for free through the British Library on their ethos system, E-T-H-O-S. And the problem is 
that historians wanting a career have to sort of then persuade publishers that what they're writing for their first book is markedly different from yeah. the PhD. Yeah. Otherwise, it's a lot of the otherwise, same it's, why would you? Why would? Why would somebody buy it? Yeah. What immediately struck me when I was studying naval history early on, before I did my PhD, is that I was interested in naval tactics. I was interested in how ships actually worked, basically, yeah. and the relationship between that and our given understanding of naval tactics. And they yeah. were markedly different. In fact, all of our understanding of naval tactics had been based on books which were essentially written by mathematicians in the 17th century, so, and uh, French-Dutch kind of treatises, mainly. Um, and they saw the problem of sailing ships as a geometrical mathematical problem. Mm. And it meant that all of the writing about tactics was was theoretical. It was kind mm. of pie-in-the-sky mm. stuff. Um, and so if you, I realised that if you went to a different load of sources, whether it's descriptions of battles, logbooks, and particularly court-martial records, yep. they're wonderful because they don't just tell you what happened. They ask why it happened. Mm. And they don't just ask uh, explain why it happened. They ask the captain, different sailors, uh, different officers. So they ask the same question to 10 or 15 people. Yep. So you get a different perspective on what's happening. Um, once I kind of narrowed that down, I realised I could completely rewrite our understanding of how um, sailing warships fought in battle. Yeah. And then by doing that, you can rewrite how and why we won battles. Yeah. And that changes our understanding of how and why we might have won wars. And then suddenly, you know, you basically just you put a crack in the foundations of so much. Mm. Um, mm. And so the, the implications of what I'd, I'd, I'd actually done were were huge yeah. and it made it you know it, it required reading for for all naval historians of the period yeah yeah um do, doing the actual structure of the book was really interesting um so my chapters are contact it's basically like being in a battle yeah. first contact yeah. before the ships fight each other mm. how can you identify the other ship as an enemy or even if the other ship is hostile how can you identify the nationality of the other ship um I, so it's all to do with identification and intention yeah through behavior yeah of ships um, uh, chase and escape. So what are you going to do? You're going to run away. You're going to escape. How you actually did that. Yeah. Um, and then the separate chapter on the tactics of chasing. So speed and performance tactics of chasing. Then um, something on station keeping. So mm. we, people just talked about ships it working in fleets, but how do they actually do it? And what implications does that have for command and control? Um, yeah, communication. This is really interesting. So it's the communication between ships. Mm. And a lot of the history here had been written about flags and signaling codes. But what I managed to demonstrate is there were such big gaps in the commands and signaling code that didn't tell you what you needed to know. There was also a huge body of unwritten rules yeah. of expected behavior. And one of the things that really got me thinking about this was looking at the courts martial records and people were defending what they de did according to the expected way of doing things, as, as is expected, according to the custom of the day. And I suddenly realised there was an entire body of knowledge that we didn't know anything about. Yeah. So I had a whole chapter on unwritten rules, um, which is probably the thing I'm most proud about, right. when I suddenly realised that there was something that we were missing. Hmm. Um, all to do, then, then uh, command, how you actually commanded, fleet tactics, fighting tactics... Um, repairing damage, um, position in relation to the wind, and then a conclusion. The repairing damage is good as well. So um, I found out the different ways that sailors repair damage. And there's a whole 
kind of a hidden area of seamanship there, mm. which we didn't know anything about. And actually, the, the, story, the, the really interesting story is not, it's not about how many ships were lost or sunk. And this applies to shipwreck as well, in mm. battle or mm. in storm. It's, you're looking at the negative. It's how many ships were nearly lost or sunk but saved. That's actually the, the most interesting point. Um, and there's, there's, a, there's a whole kind of world of, of human skill which has mm. been utterly lost. Mm. And once you understand it, it kind of reshapes your, your understanding of, of, of the maritime world, basically. Mm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Well, my book came to me on, I had this sort of, to go back to what I was saying earlier on, I had this sort of conundrum of what to do. And then my supervisor had sort of said, go away and write, spend the next term writing, uh, you know, reports on, you know, on these three different topics. And I thought, oh God, that's going to take, it's going to be so, such a waste of my time. I went away on a, to visit my sister at university. She was at university in Wales and I went on a long train journey and I just sat down and thought and then came and just sort of said, right, that's what I need to do. Um, picked the thing on women's letter writing. And then the first thing that I did was having decided on it, I basically just needed to go out and find the material. Yeah. So I started with a massive trawl through the archives. Um, I went through and there was a little book called Record Offices and How to Find Them. And I got a list of every record office and repository in the United Kingdom and also in North America. And I wrote letters to them. Mm. And I said, have you a questionnaire? Have you got, you know, women's letters from? And I cast my, I cast my net very wide from 1400 to 1800. And I, I got back like a, a foot of mail from them. I've still got, I've still got it. it right. It's one of the, you know, and, and haven't gone through, haven't followed up on half of it because it's so much material. So I then, I then found all this material. I then spent a year traveling around the country, visiting record offices up and down the country, finding this material. This was before digital cameras. So I wasn't sort of nowadays, yeah, nowadays go, you'd go and yeah. you'd snap and go. And it's this kind of smash and grab kind of archival trawl. 
but you'd basically have to physically sit in these libraries and make transcripts. Yeah. I had to learn paleography, so I had to learn how to, the history of handwriting, I had to learn how to read them. And then what you've got to do is impose, so rather like your structure that you're talking about, impose some kind of structure on this. And this this is the, if we go through the chapters of my book, so you start off with the introduction where you sort of, you make your argument, you 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 talk about sources, you talk about methodology in terms of like, how are you going to read these things? Um, you talk about the, the the field, the historiography. So the historiography basically means the history of the subject. So how have pe- how do you insert it into different sort of fields? So I, I set that all. Who's up. written what about Who's it? Who's written before. what about it before? Yeah. Um, then went on. Then there's a chapter on letters and letter writers. So basically, this went through. You know, who are these women? What social class are they from? You know, what age are they? So all the sort of fundamentals. And then, you know, letters are not just simple documents. You then unpack, you know, what kinds of letters are they? You know, what what are they writing about? All of those sort of topics and themes. And then one of the things that, that struck me was, um, you know, how they were written. Yeah. So I looked at the composition of letters. So people write, and we've talked a lot about this in, in the past, the use of secretaries, the use of models, templates, dictation. Then I considered it in the next chapter in terms of female literacy and the social conventions of writing. So this was basically, you know, thinking about it in terms of women's education and the the sort of the 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 rules, the unwritten rules, rather like your unwritten rules, the unwritten rules of when you would write yourself and when you wouldn't. Then I then in the fifth chapter, I considered delivery. So, you know, letters are not just sort of simple documents that we read as historians, but they need to be delivered. So about postal conditions, they then need to be read. So I was considering, you know, I was considering those kinds of things. Then the functions of letters, so looking at the roles that they play, the uses of them. And then, and then it all, the, the next chapter looked at social relations, you know, and, and, Letters are a brilliant resource for looking at family history. You know, so it enabled you to look at the kinds of roles, social roles that women played within the family and within society. Then I looked at marital correspondence as a separate chapter. And there's an awful lot of letters between husbands and wives. The final chapter looks at letters of petition. And this enabled me to look at the political role that women have. So, and I think Having finished this, it then it meant that what I'd done was an enormous amount of archival research that then set up where I was going to go professionally afterwards. There was the the work, and my my work has been in several different directions. There's the work on on women, uh, which I you know, and gender history, which I've been you know, which I've been has been a sort of real passion. There's been the strand on letter writing. And later books on the culture of letter writing and on the, the big book on the material letter. There's also been a strand on on politics. I've been very interested in, in politics and particularly how women fit into political structures. And then there's been an, a sort of a strand uh, which is a more literary strand. You know, and I, I'm not just a historian, but I'm also a, I see myself as a sort of crossover literary critic mm. as well. Uh, and so there's been, and also an an, an interest in material texts. Mm. So so looking at texts as physical objects and thinking about the sort of physical written forms of them. 
um, which has led into sort of later work on material culture and, and where I am now. I, I think it's really, really good sort of establishing the firm foundations of, of how we write. I mean, now yes. I write very differently. So I've gone through, you know, a whole different kind of raft of books. I've written these these um, illustrated ones. And then I did my um, Hearts of Oak trilogy. Yeah. The, um, the Fighting Temeraire, the story of the ship and the painting, Turner's famous painting, The Fighting Temeraire, uh, the Admiral Benbow, um, who, who that's the name of the pub in, in Treasure Island, mm. um, where Jim Hawkins meets um, uh, Black Dog and Blind Pew, and, uh, and Long John Silver. Anyway, the Admiral Benbow was a real person. And the Glorious First of June, which is this very important naval battle uh, during the Reign of Terror, the, during the French Revolution, which has basically been forgotten, but it was considered to be the hardest fought battle of the Age of Sail. And um, let me just run through the other books as well. I did a, a book called The In the Hour of Victory, which was about a collection of letters I found in a book in the British Library. You'd be really interested in that in terms of the actual, the, how, how it works and what I discovered. The book as an object. Um, that was the, the most important British naval dispatches for the, um, that kind of glorious period of British naval power, 1794 mm. to 1815. And then I wrote um, my biggest book, my last book, The, um, the Struggle for Sea Power, a, a huge naval history of the American Revolution. Very good. The, the point I want to make about this, we're not going to go through them one by one, but um, I've Interesting, got, though that would be. <laughs> all sorts of different versions of these books. And so each oh. book has its own history. So let me just go and get this one. Well, first of all, I'll give you this. There we are. What's that? Uh, gosh, I have no idea. What? I don't even know what... Um, that, is it in Chinese? It is. That's, that's fighting ships in Chinese. Goodness me. Um, so I've got different versions of these. So, wow. you know, the, each book has its own history. And, and this is probably one of the, well, this is the mid-range one. So you write the book, you hand it in, and then you get a bound draft of it. Um, and this is an early, early version of it. So this is before the book is actually produced. You get sent a kind of an advanced reading copy, um, which you could then send out to people to review. Yeah. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's printed on cheap paper. It hasn't got much of a cover. Um that's the earliest incarnation yes. of a book. Yes. And then you have the hardback book. So we've got um, the hardback one of the Fighting Temeraire there. Then after that, it gets the paperback book. And then you can have different international copies of it. So I've got uh, an American version of um, The Struggle for Sea Power there. And there's an English version. Um, and so... Each each book has its own version and its own life, which I think is interesting. And each book is slightly different. Yes. And um, just to finish off, this is this is distinctly for trade press books, yeah. rather than academic books, yeah, so which this tend is, this to is, come out in like, hardback. I think this is the difference. We'll see. And um, this is my working copy of my book in the Hour of Victory, which is about this amazing collection of British naval dispatches. It's full of sticky notes with. It's, um, with, with Scrolls it's, on them. The spine's been ripped off. It's full of sticky notes. Um, it's a working copy. It's isn't a working it? copy, and it's it's particularly a working copy for talks, for giving mm. talks. So the sticky notes oh, help great, help me great, turn to things great immediately, which is particularly important for this kind of book, which is about letters, where you need to be. Yes. So I can talk off my Lots head, of off the top of my head yes. about about the context, but I can't memorize the letters. No. No. <laughs> um, I suppose, you know, that really matters when you need to be so so specific about it. Um, so there you are. So those are all the different versions of my books, um, and I just yeah, I think that the, the the unexpected point there is that is that each one has its own history, which hmm. is di different from yeah, the history yeah. of me writing it or as me as an author. I've done. I want to take it in a slightly different direction. I've, we've talked about my the first book. Uh, we then talked about the sort of the I talked about the range of of 
historical fields and topics that I've worked on. And two, several things that I think are, are distinct and probably unexpected. One is I've written a lot with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've really enjoyed that. And we are writing together at the moment. And I think that that whole process of writing with somebody else and producing a book with somebody else is really interesting. And I think I, I think I enjoy it more than writing by myself now because mm-hmm. I have learnt... I've learned so much. I mean, I still, I think the way the way it's always worked for me is I think what you need to do is establish a structure that you're both, you're all happy with. And then you need to have your, you need to be given, you need to have your own independent tasks and sections that you're writing yeah. and then be able to, so that you can go off and work independently. But then you need to come together and 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 write and i i learned so much about writing in this way with a really really good friend of mine andrew gordon who i've talked about quite a bit recently uh in these podcasts and he is a brilliant prose stylist wonderful wonderful writer and just the he's a literary critic as well so he brings a sort of different slightly different skill set to me and just i found working with him such a creative process and we wrote two we edited two books together wrote you know large introductions together um and then i wrote with a, a professor in sweden called svante norhem and again you know this brilliant uh, way and now we are writing yes and I, I, I think so the history of my books the unexpected history of my books will be uh, this will be a significant moment because the histories of the unexpected book i've written yep. is the first book i've ever written with anyone else yeah it's good i'm really enjoying it and I find I find it's I think what I like about it is it's that it's your you've got a sort of you've got a sort of sounding board. Yeah. You spring idea. You know, I find that kind of collaborative work and I've done a lot of collaborative work over the last decade. That kind of that collaboration, which is really different from the lone historian working, you know, his or her kind of separate furrow. The, co- the thing about the joy about collaboration is the kind of it's the spark, it's the excitement, it's yeah. the energy that comes from it. Yeah. Um, so, well, there we go. Even our books have, a, have their own history. They and do. I, I, we've only just kind of touched on it, actually. Yeah. Um, because they, the, the other thing about it is that this is, these books represent uh, 15 years of work. Yeah. And so they're physically different. Yes, they've changed over time in yes. in terms of the way they're made, the way they look, the the typeface, the letter, the the paper they're printed on, everything. Um, so they would actually open up a, a kind of a, a wonderful world of history um, about the history of the book. Yeah, and the wonder, the the extraordinary thing that's happening at the moment is the print on demand books. Yeah, have you come across those? I yeah, I yeah. ordered something for uh, our podcast the other day, a reader on material culture, and mm-hmm. it came, and it was awful. It's like a sort of it's. It's printed on cheap A4 paper. And this is basically a book that is not A4. It's a book like the sort of standard size of a book. But what they've done is they've basically done this print on demand and the book is sort of in the middle of the page. So it's really awful to read. And I think there is this move in publishing now to try and reduce costs. And the, the quality of book production is... Is going downhill. It's a, it's a particular problem with print on demand. If the, yeah. that's by definition, you're asking for one copy. Yeah, uh, and you know that's not it's, the way publishers no. work. They need to be able to make ten thousand copies exactly. um, to actually make a beautiful book. Yes, um, and you know also I think an interesting point is my 
this is my book, the In the Hour of Victory. It is, it is, it's printed in black and red, and it's it's on beautiful thick paper. Um, it's it's a very very different physical yes. kind of type of book, um, and that that very much marks it marks a point in in the history of my books. Yeah, um, how they're made and, and and why they're different. Um, thank you for listening, everyone. Um, I thought that was very interesting. So. I thought it was very interesting. <laughs> we are very interesting. So. <laughs> if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on iTunes. Um, subscribe to the podcast and tell all of your friends, all of them. Uh, we're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow us at Unexpected Pod. We are we are desperately proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit, and other great shows that you really should be listening to. And you can find out more about what we've got planned in the forthcoming months, show notes, video clips, photos of everything, and all sorts of other stuff at historyhit.com forward slash unexpected. Bye. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.